Well, good morning, Rocky Peak. Hey, great to see you. My name's Michael. If we haven't met yet, I'm one of the pastors here. I'm just so glad you're, you're joining us today, whether you're here in the worship center, you're out on the patio. Uh, you may have already done this, but inside your program is a green and white message note sheet that we use every week. If you're regular, you'll know that, but if not, if you're new, for those of you online, uh, there's a, either, depending on the format you're watching, either at the top or the bottom, there's a link for message note sheet. You can download it in your favorite uh, format. But uh, uh, before we go and teach, just a couple things. One thing I just want you to know is Scott's serious on this whole thing about uh, this apologetics deal. Uh, this is a ticketed event, all right? So um, it's, we're, we're cutting off at 1,000. Like, well, that's what we have 1,000. And there are 911 signed up as of end of the 9, nine o'clock service. So when we say sign up, it's like this is not just hype. Uh, we're telling the truth, you know, that, that uh, if you want in, get in. We, this was one of our things that before Biola started announcing it, we wanted to announce it here because that's why we're doing this for our own church. And so you got first shot, but uh, probably by the end of the day, it'll probably be sold out. So just encourage you that if you're, you're on the fence, um, get off. All right. <clears throat> uh, secondly, you know, as I was coming to church today, I just felt like the Lord was putting something on my heart to share and uh, I, I just want to share this with you that, you know, um, when we come into this place on the weekends, um, what we're doing is we're really entering into sacred space, right? Amen. This is uh, like we're entering into holy ground. And I think there's a natural tendency, especially in our culture, where we have the freedom to meet that sometimes we just kind of roll into church. It's just it's Sunday. It's what we do. Um, but, you know, this, this is not about uh, performance, Right? This is not entertainment. Like what we're doing is the people of God are coming together under the authority of our king to hear from him. It's one of the key components of our spiritual growth. Like we talk about this three-legged stool model. We need that one-on-one -on -one time with Jesus on a regular, regular basis. We need our, um, our time with Jesus uh, in small groups, right, where we're sharpening and growing together. And then we need this time with Jesus, this time of encounter where we gather together we, we experience his presence in worship. We come around his word. And uh, it's just so important that we enter with that approach, you know, every week. There's a, there's a passage of scripture that I, I love, uh, memorizes in Ephesians 5, verse 14, where Paul says, wake up, sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. It's a beautiful passage. In the Greek, it goes like this, egore, hakathudo, kyanastas, ekton, nekron, kyepifause, soy, hakristas, right? Then pause, hey, hey, wake up, realize who we are, realize what we're doing, and what a beautiful word for us, amen? amen. That we come in, we need to come in with a posture of on the edge of our seats, our Bibles open, and saying, speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. And so I just felt like the Lord was just putting on my heart today, just not for any particular reason. I, I think maybe it's because of the topic we're talking about today is so important. But I, I don't really know the reason for it, but I just could see this happening in my mind's eye. It's time for us to be together and just to gather as this church and say, hey, what we're doing here, we're not playing games here. Like, like we're gathering under the authority of our king to learn how to follow him. And so, so we need to wake up and realize it's not a performance, not entertainment, right? We're here to listen and then to follow, amen? Amen. amen. So with that, let's go before the Lord. So Lord, you've, you've given us a wake-up call today. You've said, awake, O sleeper. You've called us into your presence, and we recognize you're here, Lord. You said that where two or three are gathered, that you are in your name, that you're there. You said that, that when we gather, the power of the Lord is present. Lord, so we welcome you as our leader. You said, Lord, in your word that in you we live and move and have our being. You're closer to us in the air we breathe. And you're here with each of us. You know our circumstances. You know our journey. You know our situation. And we ask you to speak according to that. Teach us how to listen. Teach us how to follow. Teach us how to be on the edge of our seats with a posture of speak, Lord for your servant is listening. And we will give you all the praise for that in your name. And everyone said, amen. amen. 
our story today uh, starts a very dark and wintry night. Outside, the wind is howling. You can feel it beating against the side of the house. The rain is pouring, and it's been this way all week. It's a, it's a once-in-a-generation storm for, for him in this part of the world. As he sits here, he's, he's at his neighbor's house, and he's come in drenched from the driving rain. He's freezing. He's shivering in front of a fire. As he sits there, with a warm drink in his hand, trying to regain kind of his body temperature. His mind begins to drift back into that fateful day, the day that seems so long ago now that he made a decision. He decided to take a risk. His friends, his family had told him not to do it. But after thinking it through, he felt like the risk would be worth the reward. So he made that decision. And now as he sits alone in front of the fire, dripping wet, he can no longer hold out the truth that he's been trying to push down all week long since the storm started. The fact is that he's played the part of a fool. And as a result, his life has been destroyed. Well, today, we continue the series that we started just a few weeks ago, uh, it's called The Gospel of God. And for those of you who are brand new, whether you're here in a worship center, you're joining us online, uh, this series is an in-depth study of one of the most important letters ever written in the history of the world. Um, it was written by one of the key leaders of the early movement of Jesus. If you're new at this, we call him Paul or the Apostle Paul. And he's writing to a group of Christ followers that he's never met. They live a long ways away from him. They live in, this, in the capital city, the Roman Empire, in the, the capital of Rome itself, about a million inhabitants at this time. And so he's, he's not met most of these people. He knows some of them, but he's not met most of them. And so he's writing this letter to them. Uh, and so we call it the letter to the Romans. And if you've been with us the last few weeks, we've been doing a deep dive into this first seven verses, the first half of this long intro. We're going to return there today. So if you have your Bibles, you have your apps, let's go ahead and open up to chapter one of Romans. And there in your note sheet is a section called The Gospel of God, uh, the Introduction. So before we jump in, you know, what we've seen the last few weeks is that when, when we read the letters of the Apostle Paul, we always need to pay close attention to the intros. Because though on the surface they look like sort of random, the, in reality, they're, they're often very intentional and strategic as Paul begins to introduce some of the key concepts, topics that he wants to unpack for them as later in this letter. And if this is true in general of Paul's letters, it's especially true of the letter to the Romans. And the reason is, again, he's writing to people he's never met. The Apostle Paul, his apostleship was often questioned, critiqued. His message was often misrepresented. He needs the help of these people. He's going to be visiting them in his, in his mind soon. Uh, he wants to, to enlist their support in helping him kind of a new frontier of ministry. And so it's important that he introduces his his, himself as an apostle, his calling and the message, what he calls the gospel of God that he brings uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a strong way. And so uh, today we're going to take a, another quick look at these first seven verses, and then we're going to come back and look at this next gospel word that we, as we go through this passage. So he starts in verse one, he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. So if you were here last week, this is that Greek word doulos, the slave, a slave of Christ Jesus, and called to be an apostle. We looked at this word two weeks ago, an apostolos. He's set apart for the gospel of God, this big picture story of, God, of God's uh, rescue of our race. And he says, now this gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. So, so when Jesus came, it wasn't what Israel was expecting, um, but this, this rescue mission was actually, in the retrospect, you can look back and see it was predicted by the prophets in the Old Testament Scriptures kind of the Hebrew Bible. And he says that it's regarding his son. So this gospel, the hero of this story, the main character is his son, uh, who as to his earthly life, like his human lineage, he was a descendant of King David, as prophesied about the Messiah, but who through the spirit of holiness was called the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. And so uh, Jesus did many signs and miracles that substantiated his claim to be the Messiah, to be the son of God, but the ultimate sign was his resurrection from the dead, on which all Christianity arises or falls. And then he says that he, he names this son as Jesus Christ our, what's the next word? 
our Lord. So underline that word. This is the first of two times he's going to use this word. This is the Greek word that we're going to be focusing on today, kurios. And this is the first of two times he's going to mention it. And so he says, through him, through Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles. Remember, Paul's uh, primary assignment was to share Jesus with non-Jewish people. Uh, to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. So we'll talk about this more in this letter, but true faith in Jesus actually leads to obedience. And he says, all this is for his name's sake. And he says, you also are among the Gentiles. So most of the church in Rome, we believe, was Gentiles, some Jews, a minority. But uh, you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ and this, is, this letter is to all in Rome, uh, both Jews and Gentiles, who are loved by God. That beautiful Greek word, agapatos, from agape, the loved ones of God. Uh, and who are called to be his holy people. In the Greek, his hagioi, uh, often translated saints. Those who are just called out of darkness, out of this fallen evil world, and, and called to be transformed by Jesus to be, uh, become the people we are created to be. And uh, it says, so grace, uh, grace and peace to you from God our Father. So when we come to Jesus, we'll learn this in Romans 8, we're adopted into his family, and, uh, and God becomes our Father. So grace and peace to you from uh, God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. The second mention of that word, kurios. All right? So what we're going to do today is we're going to be doing a deep dive into this word, uh, kurios. And so if you've been here the last couple weeks, you know this, that what we're doing in this intro is what I've said is that in, that, uh, in this intro, Paul is not only introducing himself and his message, uh, his, his gospel, as he, the gospel of God, but he's using some key, what I've called gospel words, uh, to describe uh, himself, to describe this gospel message. And, and these, are, these are words that play a huge part in Paul's vocabulary in all of his letters. And what I've shared is that like each of these words is almost like a window into Paul's worldview, kind of the truth about life, the reality that God has revealed to Paul to share with us who God is, who we are, how our relationship works, uh, the path to life, and so on. And so today we're looking at this, this next key word, this gospel word called kurios. So there in your note sheet, you have a section called the gospel of God, Kurios. Okay, so let's jump in. So let's talk about this word. So first of all, uh, what we're going to find out today, this, was, this word was extremely important to the Apostle Paul. We see it's mentioned twice here in this very important strategic intro. You notice there in your note sheet, it says the first one, kind of verses one through four, the gospel of God regarding his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, right? And he comes back to it in verse seven, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this may be a surprise to you, but what we're gonna find out today that this word kurios is actually Paul's favorite term to refer to Jesus. He uses this word more than any other word to refer to Jesus. In fact, uh, one of the kind of most respected New Testament scholars of our day is uh, James Dunn. And there in his commentary, look what he says. He says, kurios is Paul's favorite title for Christ. It's used about 230 times in the Pauline corpus, meaning Paul's letters. Now, later we'll learn it's actually more than this. It's actually like 275, and I'll explain why Dr. Dunn got it wrong. And, uh, <laughs> And his close link here, but he says his close link with the resurrection of Christ from the dead reflects the degree to which for Paul and the first Christians generally, the lordship of Christ was a result of his resurrection. In other words, as we'll see today, that, that when Jesus returned to the Father after his resurrection, there was a change in his status. At that point, he became Lord of creation. So we'll talk more about that as we go along. Now, so today we want to do a deep dive into this word kurios, so important to Paul, his favorite word. Uh, and it's, a fav it's, it's so important for us to understand the gospel of God, what it's about, what it looks like to receive the gospel, and what it looks like for us to be followers of Jesus. Um, but this is actually a little bit of a challenge. And the reason, there's a twofold reason for this. First of all, we don't use the word Lord in our culture outside of church settings, right? Like we don't talk about the Lord of England or the Lord of Russia. We talked about, we talk about presidents. We talk about prime ministers. We talk about dictators or strongmen. We don't talk about lords. It's not a word in our culture. 
And secondly, when it is used in our culture, it's usually in religious settings like this. And so we talk about the Lord Jesus. Hey, the Lord Jesus this, the Lord Jesus that. We don't really understand even what we're saying half the time. It's just like Lord is his first name, you know? Like Lord Jesus Christ. First name Lord, second name Jesus, you know, Christ. So, so, it's really, so what we need to do today, we've got a challenge. And what we're going to need to do today is try to take off our 21st century lenses put on our first century lenses and talk about, hey, what did the word kurios mean in the first century? So what did Paul and the other early Christians, what did they mean when they said Jesus is kurios, all right? Now to do this, we have to kind of weave together three different streams, if you will. Um, and we need to talk about, hey, first of all, what did the word kurios mean in the Roman Empire? It was a common word in everyday life. Secondly, what did it mean to the early church? And third, what did it mean in the Jewish scriptures in the Septuagint? Okay, so let's, let's jump in. So you see the three bullets there. So first of all, let's talk about the word kurios in the Roman Empire. It says Caesar is Lord. So in the Roman Empire, the word kurios has a wide, what we call in uh, kind of linguistics, a wide semantic range. Remember like last week we talked about the word doulos? And you said, what does it mean? And I said, slave. Well, what else does it mean? Nothing. It means slave, right? Very narrow semantic range. But the word uh, kurios has a wide semantic range. In other words, it can mean several different things in different contexts. For example, it can be a word of just of kind of polite address. Like if you just want to say, like in English, if we address someone as sir, it can be used in that way. So for example, in the gospel, sometimes you have people come to Jesus for something. They're not his disciples or anything, but they'll address him courier. And that's, they're not saying he's Lord in this ultimate sense. They're just saying, sir. Right? Um, sometimes in the Roman Empire, the word kurios refers to certain pagan deities. Right? Not all pagan deities, but there were certain gods, certain religions that had come from the Eastern Empire and made their way to Rome. We call these mystery religions. Uh, they've come from the East. They've come from Alexandria uh, or come from Egypt in the South. And so in certain mystery religions, their gods were referred to as lords, like Lord Serapis, for example. Okay? But the most important use of this word in the Roman Empire was the use of Lord as a political or military term. Like a Lord is someone who's in charge over other people. It's a ruler. And of course, the ultimate Lord would be Caesar, right? He's the, he's the ruler. He's the authority. He has the power of the Roman Empire. Don't mess with Caesar, right? He, Caesar is Lord. So what I want you to catch is in the first century that this was primarily a political, military term of rule, although with Caesar, they, Caesar was starting to be worshipped as a god in the eastern part of the empire, and so it's starting to take on some religious overtones, right? But in the Roman Empire, it means like uh, leader, political leader. Right? Uh, so let's talk about in the early church. Well, this is very similar uh, when the early church talked about Jesus being Lord, they're talking about being the ultimate ruler over all creation. And so um, let me give you an example of this. Um, on the day, uh, kind of very early when the, when the church is born, the church is born, as you remember, on the, at the, on the day of Pentecost, right? So let's set the scene. Jesus has left 10 days before. Right? He's returned to the Father 10 days before, uh, he's told his disciples, stay in Jerusalem until the coming of the Spirit. They don't really know what to expect, but all the prophets had said that when the Messiah comes, the kingdom of God comes, the Spirit will be poured out. And so they're waiting in Jerusalem. They don't know what they're waiting for. It's nine o'clock in the morning on the day of Pentecost. Now, Pentecost was one of the three great pilgrim feasts. And so as a result of that, Jews from all over the world were jamming, packed into the city from all over the Roman Empire. At 9 o'clock in the morning, the fire of God falls on these first believers. They begin to prophesy, like prophets in the Old Testament. They begin to praise God in languages they had never learned. And this causes a huge crowd to form because everyone's hearing their native language from their part of the world. Like, how are these Jews, how, how are these rural Jews doing this, right? You know, like, how are these Jews from Barstow speak doing this, right? So anyway... 
they, a crowd gathers and Peter gives his first message after the resurrection. And he's explaining like what is going on here and why. And in that message, he is going to refer to a very important messianic psalm. And I, this, I put the reference there on your note sheet, but very important psalm. It's Psalm 110. It's a psalm by King David. And in this psalm, uh, David says he sees a scene in heaven. And in this scene, he sees Yahweh, the God of Israel, and he sees the Messiah. And in this scene, Yahweh says to the Messiah, sit here at my right hand, the place of honor, the place of power, until I make all the nations come under your feet, until you rule over creation. So in the middle of his sermon, or towards the end of his sermon, uh, Peter says this, it's there in your note sheet. He says, exalted to the right hand of God, talking about Jesus, 10 days earlier, remember he returned to his father, exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the father the promised what? Yeah, so he's received the Holy Spirit, like the prophet said, and he's poured out what you now see and hear. So all these people prophesying, that's a sign that this is as a result of the Holy Spirit being poured out. And he says, um, and now he, he says, and now he's going to quote from Psalm 110, that famous messianic psalm. And he says, for David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, remember David wrote this psalm, the Lord, now in the Hebrew, this is the word Yahweh. If you were to look up this psalm in your Bible, it would have Lord all caps, right? So the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, which is to, uh, which would be to the Messiah, right? This is kurios in Greek, by the way. So the Lord, Yahweh says to my Lord, he says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Let all the nations report to you. He says, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, that God has made this Jesus, who you crucified a month and a half ago, both what? Lord, kurios and Messiah. So do you see what this means? He's talking about, he is a he's like the Caesar of the cosmos. He is, he is over all the nations of the world. It's a place of rule. Now, of course, if you're a Jew and you are part of that crowd calling out for Jesus' death, and you, you suddenly realize it, oh my God, I've killed the Messiah, you're in deep water. And so... They're going to ask Peter, if you look at the next passage, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, hey, what should we do? Like, we're up a, up a river without a paddle. I mean, we're, we're in deep water. And Peter says, here's what you need to do. What's the first thing? Repent. I want you to underline that. We're going to come back later. But what we see is that what this means, Jesus is Lord of creation. He's a top ruler and we'll talk more about that later. He says, repent and be baptized, and you'll receive uh, the forgiveness of sins, and you'll also receive the gift of the Spirit. We'll come back to that later, okay? All right, so, so what I want you to catch is that for the early church, they saw the term Lord in a very similar way, that it's, it's talking about rule, it's talking about authority, except we're not just talking about over the Roman Empire, we're talking about over the entire cosmos, Okay. Now, there's one, there's a third stream we need to bring together in this beautiful confluence of streams to understand the nuances, the connotations of this word, and that has to do with the Jewish scriptures. Um, you'll see there, uh, Yahweh is Lord, and underneath the Septuagint. So if you're here last week, we learned this, that uh, in the ancient world, most people couldn't read. In the first century, maybe 10%. If you could read, even if you're a Jew, chances are you cannot read Hebrew. The reason is the lingua franca of the ancient world, uh, kind of the common language that tied the empire together, was Greek. You know, like, like in our world, the lingua franca is English. That's why students in Japan, in China, in Europe, they're all studying English, right? Uh, because it's, it's the common language of our world today. Well, in that day, it was Greek. So as a result of that, the the, the preferred Bible, the favorite Bible of the ancient church, uh, the Apostle Paul, was this Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. 
that had been translated 100, 200 years before Jesus' time. We call it the Septuagint. Right? So that's the Bible. You go to church, you hear the Bible read, you wouldn't have your own copy. When you hear the Bible read, you're more often than not, you're hearing the Septuagint. Okay? Now you say, well, why is that important? Well, here's why. Because in the Septuagint, often the translators, when they get to the word Yahweh, they would translate it as kurios. Yahweh is kurios. So understand this now, that when, you're, when the early church is saying Jesus is kurios, they're saying something very profound, right? They're, they're speaking of his divine nature. Like Paul said, by his human lineage, a son of David, but, but, but he was uh, declared, revealed as the son of God by the resurrection from the dead, right? So, so when they're reading along, you're, you're seeing this, hey, Jesus is curious, Yahweh is curious. You see what's happening here. In fact, um, one of my favorite scholars, uh, Leon Morris, who's now gone to be with the Lord, but in his commentary on Romans 1, look what he says. He says, Paul uses the word Lord, remember, kurios, 275 times. Now, remember the other scholars said 230? You say, why? Well, he's a more liberal scholar. He doesn't believe all the 13 letters are from Paul, so the corpus is smaller. Uh, Leon Morris believes all the books, uh, all the letters are Pauline, and so he's going to have more lords. And, of course, I'm with Leon Morris. But anyway. All right, so he says this term... Um, he said, this term could mean no more than a polite form of address, like sir. We talked about that, right? Lord Caras could mean sir. It could also be used of the deity one worships. We talked about mystery religions, like Lord Serapis, right? But he said the really significant background, though, is its use in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Remember the Septuagint? To render the divine name Yahweh where the Hebrew has this name of God, Yahweh, the Septuagint frequently translate with Lord, kurios. Christians who use this as their Bible would be familiar with the term as equivalent to deity. Thus, they were taking a significant step when they use it of Jesus. And catch this, there's even more to the story. Because what's even more fascinating is that in the Old Testament, there are passages that are clearly speaking of Yahweh. They catch this, the New Testament apostles take those passages and apply them to Jesus. Let me give you a great example. In Isaiah 45, there is this beautiful passage where Yahweh is speaking, the God of Israel. And he's saying, I'm the only God there is. There's no other God. I'm the creator God. I've created the heavens and the earth. I am the savior. There is no other savior. And then this prediction is made that one day everyone will realize this and every knee will bow, right? So there on your note sheet, this is how I pulled out the, that part. He says, turn to me and be saved. Yahweh is speaking. All you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. And then he makes this prediction before me, Every knee will bow, and by me, every tongue will swear. Well, guess what? In the New Testament, remember in this series, we're using Romans as a launch pad into the rest of his writing, Paul's writings. In his letter to the Philippians in chapter 2, there's this powerful passage where Paul is describing Jesus, and he says he existed forever in the form of God, but he gave up the rights and privileges to become a, 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 a slave, like a servant, like a slave, um, and, to, and not only did he become one of us, but he even humbled himself and suffered this excruciating, humiliating death, the death of a Roman cross. He says, because of that, God has elevated him to the highest name. Right? And then Paul quotes Isaiah 45. So look what he does. He says, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus, what will happen? So what did Isaiah 45 say? That every knee will bow to Yahweh, but now he's saying every knee is taking that and applying it to Jesus. You see what's going on here? This term, this word kurios is being taken to a whole new level. That, that when, when the early church said that Jesus is kurios, when Paul says he is kurios, what we're saying is this is a political military, and even a divine term, that Jesus, by virtue of his life, death, and resurrection, has been raised up, and when he returned to heaven, 
the, the Yahweh said to him, sit here until I make all the earth, uh, all the nations come under your leadership. You will be the human divine ruler of creation, uh, that once again, the creation will be subject to the, to the rule of a man, just like it was supposed to be with Adam. Right? And, and so with that, we, it's our, our view of what lordship means is just expanded, right? In fact, uh, another famous uh, scholar, one of my favorites, Douglas Moo, in his commentary, look what he says. For Paul, Lord, remember Kurios, expressing both Jesus' cosmic majesty, the creator of the universe, the divine judge of all, expressing both Jesus' cosmic majesty and his status as master of the believer. Remember we learned last week, like doulas, is the single best title to express the true significance of Jesus. And catch what he's saying. Of all the names of Jesus in the first century, this is the best way to describe who Jesus is. It's the best way to understand the gospel of God, that Jesus is curious. So this raises an important question. And there in your, whoa, there in your note sheet, uh, you have a section called The Gospel of God, One Key Question. It's a long question, so I'll give, you, I'll give it to you and let you fill in the blanks. So it's kind of got two parts. The first part goes like this. Who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? Now, maybe you're here. You're not yet a follower of Jesus. You're here. You say, yeah, I think I'm a follower of Jesus. You're here. No, I'm absolutely a follower of Jesus. But regardless of your said, who is Jesus to you? And what does it mean to believe the gospel? Like if I were to ask you, hey, do you believe in Jesus? Yes, I do. Do you, do you believe the gospel? Yes, I do. Well, what does that mean to you? What does it mean? Right? This whole series about the gospel of God, like what does it mean? Well, this word here is a key window in who Jesus is and what it means to believe the gospel. And this is so important because I don't know about you, but I, I think all of us struggle with this, that we all tend to create Jesus in our own image. Have you ever noticed how many times Jesus agrees with you? And when you change your opinion, he has to. <laughs> like we all have this natural tendency, and you see us in our culture all the time to create Jesus in our own image. And this is why as Christians, it's so important to always come back to the word and say, who is Jesus? Like what, what does the word say that Jesus truly is? And so today we've taken considerable time to lay the groundwork of like, when we say Jesus is Lord, what are we saying? Like what, what does that mean? What did that mean to Paul? What does it mean to the early church? What does it mean for understanding the gospel? Um, and so what we've seen is that this is a critical term of who Jesus is. And so the question is, okay, so what have we seen? We've seen that this is a, this is a title of, it's, it's a title, it's not a name. It's a title of rule over all creation, and it's a divine title for the divine ruler over all creation. And so the question is, then in light of that, who is Jesus to you? Is Jesus truly Lord in that fullest sense of the word in your life? You know, it's interesting because many, if not most scholars, believe that the first creed of the early church, you know, like here's what we believe, the first creed of the early church was very simple and went like this. Jesus is Lord. With all that meant. Not just my Lord, as if I have this little personal relationship with him that defines Jesus. No, no, he is the Lord. Like whether he's my Lord or not, he's the Lord. He's the Lord, that's the truth. Whether he's your Lord is a different issue. He may not be your Lord, but he's still the Lord. Okay. So, so who is Jesus to you? So, so this is what scholars tend to believe, that this was the earliest claim. And let, me, let me give you an example of that if we see from the scripture. In Romans chapter 10, there's a very important statement that Paul makes. 
And of course, remember, by the time we get to chapter 10, he's kind of laid this out, how Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection were made right with God through him, he's received the gift of the Spirit. He's kind of laid out uh, kind of the core message of the gospel. He just hasn't gotten to the implications yet of how we live our life, okay? So in chapter 10, he makes this statement. It's a very famous statement. I'm sure some of you have memorized it. He says, um, if you declare with your mouth, in other words, you make a public declaration that what? There you go. There's our creed. Jesus is Lord. And if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, with all that goes with it, his life, his death, his death of our sins, you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be what? Saved. Okay, so he says there's two things that need to happen in someone's life for them to be saved, to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of our beloved son. He says, first of all, you need to have heard the message about his life, his death, his resurrection, and he, you need to bought into that, right? You need to believe that that really happened. It happened in time. It happened in space. There's, there our sins were forgiven. You have to believe the message, right? Convinced that that actually happened. He said, secondly, you need to publicly declare that Jesus is Lord, Amen. right? Not just my Lord. No, he's Lord of creation. So what does it mean to become a Christian? It means that we believe in the message. And then catch this, we bow the knee and we apologize to Jesus for living a life of rebellion and following the prince of the power of the air, right? We, we apologize. We say, Jesus, I was wrong. You are right. Will you please Forgive me of my rebellion. And I lay down my sword that I've used for the enemy and I cross over the line. I switch sides in this battle between light and darkness. I come under your leadership. Now you are my Lord, right? right? Mm -hmm. Now I want you to reflect on that, how different than that is that often we have shared the message of Jesus. You know, often we've, we've said like, hey, hey, if you've walked an aisle one time in your life, if you've raised your hand at an evangelistic meeting, if you've prayed the sinner's prayer, if you were baptized and you've lived like hell ever since, well, you're saved because you said the magic word. You said that Jesus is Lord. So you're in. Can you see how foreign that is to the New Testament? Like Jesus is not two people. It's not like you can choose between the Savior Jesus and the Lord Jesus. I don't want the Lord Jesus. I'll take the Savior Jesus. No, Jesus is one. He's one person. And if you want, if you want to enter the kingdom, you have to come under the leadership of the king. You see? Sometimes we have even taught that you know what? You don't have to give your life to Jesus like Lord. You can just ask him to be your savior. And then later on in your life, if you're ready for it, you can ask him to be your Lord. You don't need to, you don't need to surrender to his lordship to be saved. You need to be saved. And then if you get around to it, or if you want the fullness of the Christian life, be your Lord. I want you to see how foreign, how the new, like the early church, the possible, like What? Hey, our message is not about your personal relationship with Jesus. Our message is about Jesus. He is the ruler of everything. You better get on the right side, right? And that's why the gospel is not just invitation, it's command. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. It's a command to repent, right? It's an invitation to receive new life based on his performance, not yours, but it's a command to repent, to lay down your arms, to switch sides, to follow your new Lord, the new Caesar of your life. Amen? Amen. So the, the question then is, who is Jesus to you? You know, it's interesting because as clear as this is from the rest of the New Testament, I want you to think what Jesus said about this. You know, today we started the day with a story, um, this sort of my version of a story that Jesus told, I definitely added some interesting, colorful facts that aren't historical fiction. 
But uh, I think you'll, you'll recognize. I don't think they really mess with the storyline. It's just, um, you know, sometimes Jesus tells these short stories. You just want to know, hey, I want a little more information there. Um, so, um, so, so, so let's set the, let's set the stage, right? So, so remember, in my story, this, this man has come in from a driving rainstorm. He's shivering in front of a fire. He's staying at the house of a neighbor in front of the fire. His mind is drifting back to this fateful decision he made or this risk he took that his friends and family don't take up, but he thought the risk was worth the reward. But now sitting there, he can no longer deny the truth that he's played the fool and he's lost everything. So that's my version of a famous story that Jesus once told. I'm sure that many are familiar with it. Um, but he tells it at the end of the most famous message ever given in the history of the world. We call it the Sermon on the Mount, kind of an abbreviated you know, it's like Matthew's abbreviated form of kind of Jesus teaching that day. Um, and it's in Matthew 5 to 7. And it's all about, here's what it means to be part of the kingdom, you know, to follow Jesus, be part of the kingdom. And so at the end of it, he tells this famous story. And he says, once upon a time, there were two men. And they both wanted to build a house. And so one man did the right thing. He went out and purchased a piece of land that was, uh, there was land that was built uh, kind of had, you know, on top of the topsoil, like underneath this topsoil was this firm like foundation of rock, of solid rock. And so he, he, he paid the extra money. Uh, the other man was the fool. He, he's the guy that comes along and he decides, hey, uh, there hasn't, this is, I know this is in a floodplain, but it hasn't flooded here. This is my, my version. Hasn't flooded, you know, here my whole life. Uh, I think I can get a good price on this land and I think it's gonna be fine, it's worth the risk. I can use the money for something else. And so he buys this, this plot of land that's sandy soil. And then sure enough, uh, the day comes when the storm begins. It's kind of a once in a lifetime storm, once in a generation storm. And the longer it goes on day after day, the river begins to rise up and it begins to go, this river begins to overflow into the subdivision where they, their houses are, right? And so as it's coming in, the man whose house is on the rock, it's, it's like the water, the river's hitting it, <laughs> but it's going around it. It can't get underneath it and undermine its foundation because of the rock foundation. The foolish man, that when that water's hitting it, the wind's hitting it, it begins to erode the soil underneath the house, and pretty soon the river's going under the house, and thus the whole house goes down, and this man loses everything, right? So Jesus tells a story, and of course the question is, well, what does it mean? Who is the wise man? Who is the foolish man? And fortunately, Jesus tells us. So there in your note sheet, at the end of Matthew 7, and by the way, by the way, this is the last thing Jesus says in this sermon, and when he gets done, Matthew says everyone loved his teaching. They just loved it. Uh, no critique that day, just amazing teaching. And so that's the context. So he says, Jesus said, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, and now I'm going to pull out a dray on you, all right? You ready? Okay, we're going to start highlighting... <laughs> We're gonna draw lines with stars. If you're artistic, little people, little house, river coming. Um, so I'm, I'm gonna try to like, I'm gonna dray this, all right? So, so therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, and what, what's he say next? Underline that. Puts it into practice. This is a man who listens and what? follows, right? He hears it, he puts it into practice, and he says, he is the wise man who built this house on the rock, and the rain came down, and the streams rose, and the wind blew. They beat against the house, but it didn't fall because it had a foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and what? Does not put them into practice. Underline that. The first man listened and followed. The second man listened and liked. He went home that day, Facebook, Jesus, like. The first man is a follower, the second man is a fan. He says, but everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't put them into practice is like the foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew, beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. So you say, okay, so Jesus, so what's he illustrating, right? 
He's wrapping up his whole message. This is his final illustration. What's he illustrating? Well, in one sense, he's wrapping up the whole day's teaching. He's, he's wrapping up chapters five through seven, Matthew's, you know, shortened version. He's wrapping it up. He's like, he's like, hey, you've listened now to what it looks like to follow me and be in the kingdom. And so let me tell you this story about how you need to respond to this teaching. And so in one sense, it wraps up the whole day. But you know what's really interesting? In another sense, it illustrates what he had just said before, this illustration. And I put that on your note sheet. This is what he had said just before the illustration. And you'll see the connection. He says, not everyone who says to me, what's he say? Lord, Lord. Lord. In the Greek, kurie, kurie, right? Not everyone who says to me, Kurie, Kurie, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only the one who what? Does the will of my father. Hey, let me tell you a story. Once upon a time, there were two men. This final story illustrates the danger. It's possible to call Jesus Lord but to not live with him as our Lord. And so I come back to the opening question, who is Jesus to you, and what does the gospel mean? What does it mean to embrace the gospel, that Jesus is Lord? You know, if you were here last week, we talked about this word doulos, and I ended with a series of questions to help you just think this through, you know, and I want to do the same today. They're not on your note sheet, but I want to give you a series of questions just to help you think, like, like who is Jesus to you? What is the gospel? Is Jesus your kurios? So let me ask you this. Your first question, is Jesus the ruler of your relationships? Jesus had so much to say about relationships, right? Loving enemies, forgiving those who hurt us, um, loving others as we love ourselves. Um, so it's so much teaching about relationships. So is Jesus the ruler of your relationships? Like as you enter into a relationship with its friends, coworkers, uh, with neighbors, whether it's uh, uh, non-believers, believers, like, like do you, is your desire like, Jesus, I want to do my relationships under your rule, in your kingdom way. I'm not always going to succeed, I'll often fail, but can you teach me how to do relationships your way? I want to do my relationships under your rule. Here's a, a, a question. Who is the sovereign of your sexuality? We live in a culture that's constantly pressing us, right? We're in the middle of Pride Month, right? We're, it's, it's causing, it's saying, hey, no, redefine human sexuality. Let me ask you, so who defines your sexuality? Who defines your sexual identity? Who defines your sexual ethic? Is Jesus the sovereign of your sexuality? Or is our culture the sovereign of your sexuality? Here comes Owen. Who is the CEO of your career? We talked about this last week. The way you approach your career is, is are you reporting to your CEO, Jesus, the Lord Jesus, saying, Lord, how do you want me to approach my career? Here's one. Who is the CFO of your finances? The chief financial officer of your finances. Here's one. Who is the prince of your priorities? Oh, we talked about this last week. How many times have we said, I don't have the time to do the right thing? Well, that sounds like the prince is not over our priorities. It sounds like we're over our priorities, right? Um, here's one. Who is the king over your kingdom? I don't know if you know this, but like each of us has, each of us has a kingdom that we're over. It's everything that's under our control that God has entrusted to us as part of our kingdom. And who's the king of your kingdom? 
using the language of the Roman Empire, who's the emperor of your empire? So who is Jesus to you? Is Jesus truly our kurios? And when we see him at the end of time, and you see him and you say, Kurie, Kurie, what will he say to you? Let's pray. Lord, we come today to one of the most, gosh, important words, impressive words, just packed full of meaning. One of the most important gospel words, it says by, that when we say it, we've said it all. When we say Jesus is kurios, it just has said so much about who you are and who we are and what it means to follow you and the path to life. And so, Lord, I'm sure that all across this auditorium, for those online that this had so many different places in our spiritual journey, that for some of us, that, that we have truly bowed the knee to you and you are our curious. We don't follow perfectly, but we're, we're under your rule and you're teaching us and we're growing and we're changing. And others of us, Lord, on the other end of the spectrum that we've not yet given our life to you. We're just, we're just exploring Christianity. We're just exploring for you. And, and so we're, we're trying to take this all in and make sense of this. What, if, what would this mean to look like to follow you? And then for some of us, Lord, we may be in a a spot where we would say Jesus is Lord, and yet often our life is not reflecting it. We come in and sing the songs, we go to the life group, we serve. But if if we were looking at our life and do we do the will of a father, do we put your words into practice, the reality is that we're not really under your lordship. We're, we're really under our own lordship. And for some of us, Lord, we may even be fooling ourselves that we call you Lord, but on that day, we will find out that you are not our Lord. And you will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. We were never in relationship. You called me Lord, but you never came under my lordship. And so, Lord, wherever we are today, we just need to hear from you. We, we, Lord, it might be a word of affirmation. You're in a great spot. It might be a word of challenge to take this next step. It may be a word of warning and judgment that you are on a dangerous path. You need to stop playing games. You need to stop, stop playing the religious game, and you need to give your life to me and come under my leadership so I can grow and transform you. You can experience the life you're created to live and you can truly thrive in my kingdom. So wherever we are today, Lord, we just come before you and we ask your Holy Spirit to be doing what only the Holy Spirit can do, to speak to us by name and to apply your word to our lives, to make it come alive so we see the path forward and what the next step is. And I pray, Lord, even as we sing this beautiful song about your Lordship, that we will sing it with new passion, with new conviction, with new understanding, because we understand what it means to say Jesus is kurios. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Let's worship.